smashing. Give everyone the best possible start to the day. See special packs for details. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about shaping our physical spaces when working from home. What can you do to take a step up from working at your kitchen table? We talked to workspace geek Ben Frain to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a brand new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In Setting TypeScript for Modern React Projects Using Webpack and Babel, Blessing Crofiga introduces TypeScript and demonstrates how to efficiently set it up in a React project. Building an example Money Heist Episode Picker app, Blessing shows us some of the features of TypeScript, along with how to use React hooks such as UseReducer and UseContext. In Microtypography, How to Space and Kern Punctuation Marks and Other Symbols, Thomas Bohm asks today in 2020... How do we add spacing to punctuation marks and other symbols? How can we adjust the space on the left and the right side in an easy and consistent way? It's actually not as easy and quick as it should be, and Thomas goes on to explain. Paul Boag tells us that arguing that dark patterns are unethical is not enough on its own, and we also need to make the case to clients and colleagues that they are damaging to business. His article, How to Convince Others Not to Use Dark Patterns, leans on some of the themes of his new book, Click, which you can also hear more about in episode 12 of the Smashing Podcast. In Styling Components in React, Shedrak Akinteo looks at some of the options for applying CSS in a managed way to React components. See how to style React components using four major styling strategies with examples of how to use them. In the process, find out the pros and cons of each to help you make informed decisions when styling your next project. And... In Accessible Images for When They Matter Most, Carrie Fisher stresses that the topic of creating accessible images is much more nuanced than some people think. In this article, Carrie reviews the different types of images, dives into some real-world examples of inaccessible public service announcements, and discusses which elements matter the most when critical messages need to reach everyone. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He is a web developer, author, and public speaker who specializes in CSS architecture, methodology, and training. Hailing from the UK, he currently works as a UI UX design technical lead at Bet365, but you might know him better from his books such as Responsive Web Design with HTML5 and CSS and Enduring CSS, both from Pact Publishing. He also writes for Smashing Magazine, and you may remember his series last year on building progressive web apps without a framework. So we know he knows his way around the modern web development landscape, but did you know he owns more trousers than socks? My Smashing friends, please welcome Ben Frain. Hi Ben, how are you? I'm Smashing Drew. I wanted to talk to you today about something slightly different from your usual specialism of CSS architecture. With social distancing measures in effect, many of us are finding ourselves needing to spend some serious time working from home. And in a quest to be productive, we might quickly find that our home workspaces aren't necessarily the best equipped or configured to help us to sort of work well and remain healthy. 
So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about workspaces and generally the sort of things people might want to think about when they find themselves working from home. Uh, this is something of an interest of yours, isn't it? It is a little bit. Um, I'm what you might describe as a, a mechanical keyboard aficionado, um, but I'm also sort of tend to get myself quite obsessed about getting my physical workspace right. Obviously, a great many of us, myself included, have been um, dumped in our home offices or whatever we deem to be our home offices um, for the foreseeable. And so you're continually making that kind of trade-off of trying to decide what do I invest in to make myself comfortable and get work done without wanting to spend thousands and thousands of pounds, dollars um, on stuff that potentially you're not going to use for a long time. So I think everybody or a lot of people are making these sort of decisions about what stuff they can grab from somewhere else and what kind of things it's worth invested in to make things more comfortable. The old sort of adage is always um, spend your money on your chair and not your desk. Um, and I, I think things like that are good advice. I mean, uh, sort of transitioning to working from home, I think many of us find ourselves working from a sofa or hunched over a laptop at a kitchen table. and That's not really the best way to work, is it? No, it isn't. I mean, I can remember the old house uh, where I used to live um, because I had a day job like a lot of other people and then I'm writing books in the evening. And I can remember spending months at a time where I would put a, a breadboard on my gas hob and my laptop on top of that. And that was my standing desk in the evenings, which actually wasn't so bad um, because it, it did force me to sort of be upright for, for decent portions of the day. Um, I was looking that before the, the whole COVID thing um, came about, because I'd started to write um, another book in the evenings, I'd made the deal with myself that I would buy one of these electronically adjustable standing desks, um, which I found great utility in. It was a it was a lot of money at the time for a desk because, I mean, obviously people um, decide what they want to spend the money on differently, but it always felt like a, a bit of an indulgence. But having had it now, I'm I think it's worth every penny. Um, and I, I really enjoy the fact that I can sit for a bit and stand for a bit. And there's not, you can get the sort of manual ones where you like crank a, a handle like an old sort of 1920s car to get the, the desk up and down. Um, but I was, um, I went for the electronic one, even though it's quite a bit extra, but I'm glad I did because I'm lazy and I probably would never use that handle. <laughs> so uh, if, we're, if we're looking to move off our kitchen table and, and think, you know, think about getting some sort of desk, sit-stand is one thing to bear in mind. Is there other considerations we should make with a desk? Yeah, I mean, I think the actual sort of the desktop itself, you, you can get very inexpensively, even um, places like IKEA, which have obviously been thrashed with everybody trying to get hold of a, an inexpensive desk at, at the moment. But you can still, um, you know, get a slab of wood fairly inexpensively. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, chairs, obviously the big one. I mean, I, I'm lucky in that touch wood, I've never had any problems with um, back or, you know, any of that kind of thing that is sort of typical of people that work at computers all day. Um, but I think even things like a, a popular one that you see is the, like the Herman Miller Arion is like one of a, a very sort of popular maker chair, but really quite expensive. But you can pick them up, um, you know, around $300, something like that refurbished, um, which is probably when you you're trying to decide where to put your money to be comfortable for a whole day's work. It, it perhaps isn't as bad as it sounds. Um, and obviously the same, I know some people um, struggle with RSI. So I know a lot of colleagues of mine have got the, the vertical mice 
um, which is, you know, they're relatively popular to, to prevent that, which again, more expensive than your typical mouse. But you've people don't always consider the fact that, um, like I know tradespeople who work as, as builders and that they would think nothing of spending a few thousand pounds on a particular piece of kit. And yet often we will just use whatever comes stock with the computer that we have and we'll bulk at the idea of spending, you know, $100 on a mouse or $200 on a keyboard. And yet really we have a very, you know, um, a relatively low entry point in terms of cost in order to do what we do. Um, I think we, we have a tendency to be a little bit perhaps cheapskate in that regard. But if you find yourself getting physical problems or you're, you're not as comfortable as you may be, it perhaps is worth thinking about those things before, you know, buying other things, I guess. I guess preventative expenditure on decent chair, for example, will uh, save you an awful lot when it comes to medical bills and physiotherapy or anything like that where, that re- is required to put the problem right. Yeah, and I suppose like it's all sort of conducive to you being good at what you do um or you know being the best that you can at what you do if your if your limitation is the kit that you're using and and you can alleviate that limit then it seems sensible to do so so if we're thinking about spending money on our sort of work environment if we're currently sat at a kitchen table on a, a wooden chair or whatever you'd, you'd reckon a chair is the best place to start uh, that would be my um advice yeah i mean i, I can't profess to be a an authority on these things, but it seems like it's a sensible, it's probably the single most sort of uh, important thing you can do to make yourself comfortable throughout the day. You know, you can start with something fairly expensive. I made the same mistake and I ended up getting a a £45 office chair from Amazon. And I didn't realise that it didn't have a kind of a tilt forward whatever the right word for that thing is, um, on the axis. So what I found is it was digging into the underside of my um, thigh, sort of behind my knees. And I was thinking, why, why are my legs going dead? <laughs> you know, after like 45 minutes of, of sitting and thing. And you just don't, I think, particularly if you work for a company that provides decent office chairs, you just take them for granted. And you. it isn't until you look at that particular make and brand that you go, oh my God, this is a $700 chair um you know when you realize that crikey people have thought about this and, and done a lot for you and then obviously you come to your home environment and you think well i'm not spending x hundred dollars on a, a chair you know um but maybe it is worth it um, particularly if you're here for the long haul and we talk a lot as developers don't we about this productivity consideration of being in the zone and um, being able to get in the flow of, of writing code or, or working on a thing and, and time just seems to pass by and you can be super productive. Well, one thing I found that could be can pull you out of that, that zone quite quickly is needing to stop and stretch because your legs have gone dead or your back's aching. That can, uh, that can really disrupt your productivity yeah. as well as the longer sort of health implications of that. I mean, what have you found, Drew, in your sort of situation? What have you, what have you done, um, like desk and, and seat-wise? What, what have you found the most effective? So at the moment, during lockdown, I'm staying with my parents. So I'm on, a, I'm on my mother's desk, which is, um, has a, uh, a filing cabinet on one end and a bookcase on the other. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's all a bit makeshift. But uh, at home, normally, I, uh, I do just have a couple of, of the cheapest IKEA desks organised in an L-shape. So I tend to work with a couple of computers and I have one on one and one on the other and, and sort of spin between them. I used to have a sort of lower back complaint quite regularly in my 20s where I would be, you know, sat at my desk for long periods. And, and occasionally every few months I would find that I couldn't get out of bed in the morning because something in my back had gone. Right. And the thing that immediately helped with that was, as you were saying, the, the sort of tip forward seat angle on a chair. 
So having a chair that did that immediately helped because I think it resolved my posture. Right. So that helped uh, immediately. But long term, what has helped and and what means I I don't have any back problems uh, at all now is just improving my personal level of fitness and and activity. Yes. Um, And that just having a bit more core strength and um, being just a bit more fitter and a bit more active has meant that I can actually, I can sit in some fairly bad chairs and, and things for a while and, and survive it. <laughs> and, and survive it, yeah. Um, so that was, uh, yes, very much immediately having a chair that would tilt forward to just to bring my, my back up and um, get me into a good posture. Uh, that was a definite, definite improvement for my back. Yeah, I mean that's interesting because it's a, another thing that I guess a lot of us are missing now. Is is I mean I, I'm by no means a gym rat at all. I just go because I don't want to die essentially. Um, um, but things like um, good barbells with with plate weights, um, I <laughs> naively thought, well, I'll just go to my local shop. I'll be able to get some of those. You know, it may be hundred pounds, and then you realise that a decent barbell itself is like two hundred dollars at least. Um, and but obviously stuff like that and keeping up with um, keeping yourself in a decent physical shape whilst you're a, a couch potato is quite important as well. Um, so much to think about for for people that have not been working from home, you know, and and, and all these sort of things become apparent very quickly. Definitely. Um, And in terms of of sort of working from home, one of the things I find that I'm doing uh, a lot lately is spending time in virtual meetings via Zoom or Skype or or whatever. Are there any things, any considerations you've made in terms of making the environment better for for being on calls? I (laughs) I mean, obviously, point point your screen away from all your your socks and pants. Uh, That's probably quite important. (laughs) Um, I mean, I've found as well that I had to try and be careful be conscious of the fact that um, at first I was raising the desk because I've got this you know desk that will raise up and a couple of people said to me it, it looks like you're about to tell me off because I was sort of looming over them because the it's so long story short I, I suppose making sure that when you take calls it's quite nice to be sort of looking directly into the webcam um, I always tend to sort of ask people if possible if we can do a a face-to-face call because I think one of the things we're incredibly lucky in this situation about is that you know speaking on a video call now is so much better um, or even you know you didn't even have it sort of 20 years ago um, and being able to see the sort of nuance in people's expressions is so much more useful um, on a remote call than just sort of hearing the voice um, and so if you're going to do that obviously um, being able to look straight down the camera or so that they can see you not at some kind of weird, awkward angle. And there's some okay lighting um, in the room. He says, as I look at myself half and dark in this uh, situation, but those sort of things are are worth thinking about. I think one thing I found has uh, really helped with my setup is uh, I got uh, a big led panel light. It's uh, called an Elgato key light, which is on a, a big stand. Oh, like a big up lighter sort of thing. It clamps onto the desk and is on a big pole and then sits above the monitor and shines a, a blanket of uh, of light down on you. Oh, that's pretty good. So it's more like a sort of daylight kind of light, I take it. Well, you, yes, you can actually adjust the uh, the colour temperature and the brightness of it from your from software on your desktop. And can you tell a difference having used that? Like, does it feel better? It makes a big difference. Um, yes, and especially get often with webcams, you get the situation where the background is is more lit by the windows in the room than you are. <laughs> yeah. And the camera doesn't expose for the right thing. Uh, so making sure that you as the subject are nice and bright in the frame uh, really helps the camera to get good focus and therefore you're, you're 
facial features are clearer and you can communicate well that way. These, these are like Hollywood techniques, Drew. It's incredible. <laughs> um, I mean, does that help as well with things like um, glare on your screen? Because you get in a more even sort of diffused light in the room. It, um, or have you not noticed? It doesn't, it's not particularly lighting the screen, no. Um, okay. But, I mean, glare on the screen is a definite thing that we should really think about in terms of workspaces. Um, where I am here, I've uh, got sort of conservatory windows uh, at the end of the room, so there's a lot of light flooding in there. I was just going to say, just what you need. <laughs> first, first thing in the morning, it can be very, very difficult. I have my editor set on a dark theme, usually, yeah. my, my code editor. Um and so then my, I often find that I'm not using the left-hand side of my screen, which is slightly washed out by the windows, and I move everything over to the right side. And you think that's a subconscious thing just because it's like, well, I just can't see it, so I'll yeah. concentrate my efforts elsewhere. But actually, probably what I should be doing is switching to a, um, you know, switching to the opposite colour scheme in my editor. I should be switching to, to dark text on a light background, perhaps during the day. They're not cool anymore, though, Drew. D- didn't you get that memo? It's not just... cool, no, but, <laughs> but neither is failing eyesight. So. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. One of, the, one of the sort of things in people's workspaces that perhaps they don't think of so readily when you think about sort of optimising how you work is perhaps one of the most common input devices which is the keyboard um you wrote recently for smashing magazine on the subject of mechanical keyboards which are seeing something of a renaissance aren't they yes that's right um it's funny because i always say to people i get quite because in sort of my um circle of people that i know um people are aware of my sort of minor obsession with these things and so i get asked quite a lot about them and over the the sort of months and months of this i thought it's one of these sort of areas which is because it is quite niche um you tend to end up on a a particular forum for this topic and you very quickly feel like oh my god this is like a level of geekery beyond something that i'm i'm comfortable with and that comes from somebody who's you know relatively geeky um but i think there's there's definite merit in them in terms of um i would never say to somebody this is something you absolutely need to make you better at what you do it it more falls into the camp of because it's you can get a mechanical keyboard which fee, it makes you feel productive and in some weird pseudo way that makes you more productive so many of us take you know the keyboard that comes with our system never think about it any more than that and just off we go um but i was surprised once i started looking at all the the plethora of different layouts that you can get because I, I just wasn't aware of the, you know, the fact you can get these tiny little 40% size ones. You can get 65% ones, which, which do have the arrow keys and, and some of the others, but lose the function keys. Um, and it was only when I really sort of started to analyze what I did with a keyboard and the sort of keys that I pressed that I realized there was whole areas of keyboard, which is taking up often a substantial portion of your free desk space where you might prefer to jot stuff down and all the rest of it. Um, and I realized that this big sort of desk commander that I was using with a, you know, a dedicated number pad was just an indulgence really. And I thought I needed those keys and I, it turns out I actually didn't. So aside from the, the physical considerations, there's just a very nice, um, I mean, mechanical keyboards often, you, you put one in front of somebody who's not seen one before and they just kind of laugh and think that it's something out of war games from the 1980s. Um, but once you overcome the fact that it isn't, you know, a, a sleek, minimal thing like that and you actually use it and you get a feel for the key travel and stuff, you actually realize that it's, there's a kind of rhythm that you can get with them. 
which you can't get with these very sort of shallow chiclet keys that we used to on keyboards nowadays. And often, you know, things like um, IMAX and the like ship with these very, very slim keyboards with very minimal travel on the keys, which which are fine. But this is obviously, we're talking about keyboards that are the other end of the scale. Um, so I always say to people, let's be clear, this isn't an exercise in good economics because they're very expensive. You know, when you can go and get a 15 pound keyboard from your Tesco's, Walmart, etc. Um, but it is an investment in your own sort of, I mean, the, the joke I allude to in the, uh, the Smashing Magazine article is um, like the Rifleman's Creed, which is, you know, a, a soldier's tool is its rifle. And for us, more than anything else, it's the keyboard. And so it's it's finding something that particularly suits your needs and you enjoy using and you take care of and, and get the most out of as you can. Uh, as you say, you know, I, I sort of think of mechanical keyboards a bit like using the, the keyboards that were on computers when I was growing up in the 1980s. Um, a sort of, you know, a really retro style of technology. Hasn't technology moved on? Aren't the keyboards that ship with modern computers just better than that old technology? Well, I think the funny thing is, better is a kind of um, subjective um, term. And so, you know, typically we have become accustomed to these very sort of, uh, taking the ones that ship with an iMac, for example, which incredible pieces of design, you know, very slim, very elegant looking. Um, but in terms of actual feedback to the user, um, the sort of key travel that you get, um, I, I've just found it's incomparable to a, you know, air quotes, proper keyboard. And so once you kind of, if, if you eliminate, if you can embrace that um, aesthetic of the, the retro keyboard, if you like, and get over that and, and actually just use one for a little bit. I don't know many people, well, I don't know anybody that, that's gone down that path and then backed back out and gone, actually, I prefer the really shallow travel. I, I like the really cramped arrow key um, setup. Because it just, for what we do, whilst it's lovely on a, a laptop because it lets you have a lovely sleek laptop that you can take different places, if you're sat in front of a machine and you're using that, um, and coders more than anyone else because we tend to have less reliance on the mouse, those keys are doing stuff for you. You know, they're working for you. So I don't think you want a tiny little um, arrow key cluster. I don't think you want a, a page up and page down doubled up on another key. These are the sorts of things that once you sort of try and analyze how you work with your keyboard, um, it kind of opens your eyes a little bit. Um, so there's a bit of a kind of an undoing of um, the aesthetic norm and the you know the what society tells you your should, keyboard should look at and 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 how it actually works for you. I don't know if that makes much sense, but is it just for programmers that that mechanical keyboards are useful, or are they do they have wider appeal than that? Oh, I mean the writers are the big proponents of them, I suppose. So I know, for example, I think there was an anecdote on of um, Terry Pratchett. Um, he famously, once he found the keyboard that he liked, he bought like 10 of them um, just because he never wanted to not have, you know, that keyboard because it was like you were saying, it's, it's about, you don't want that friction. You don't want something to throw you out of your zone. It's basically anybody who he types on a keyboard for a long period of time, you know, rather than just sort of casual use, I think. Whether you'd go the route, you know, if you're somebody that's, jotting about to lots of different locations, you can get fairly compact mechanical keyboards as well that have got Bluetooth. So, I mean, what, what keyboard do you use at the minute, Drew? What's your sort of... 
up up until very recently, I've been using the the iMac flat. Yeah, the chiclet key one. But after reading your article on Smashing uh, and chatting to some colleagues at Netlify, a lot of them are very big mechanical keyboard nerds. Ah, right, okay. I've decided to dip my toe in, and I, I've got a mechanical keyboard uh, on my on my main development machine. Okay. Now, so <laughs> I've been using it about four weeks, I think about four weeks, and I'm finding that I'm very slow and making a lot of typos um, because it is so different from the very flat. I mean, the, the, the keyboard that I'm used to is basically like what comes with a, a laptop, just so so flat, very low travel. Right, okay. Um, and I've been using a keyboard of that style for maybe 10 years since you know, since Apple first started doing those as external keyboards. Yeah. Um, so then moving to something with much further travel and uh, I'm finding a, a keyboard with uh, an angle to the keys is quite strange. I've yeah. had to prop it up quite a lot at the back to bring the keys forward to me uh, a bit because I was sort of finding that the whole angle was uh, was very strange. Right, okay. And that has helped, but I'm finding I'm very slow, um, but I am getting faster and I am making fewer mistakes. And I'm getting used to it, but I'm actually enjoying a lot of the utility. Um, okay. The particular keyboard I've got has got, uh, it's got a screenshot button. Right. <laughs> Never knew you needed. No, I know it's there's a key combination to to activate doing yeah. a screen capture. Um, but this keyboard's got a button that does it. And actually, it's something I do multiple times a day. Um, in in pull requests, we tend to include a screenshot. This is what it looked like before. This is what it looked like after. Right. Okay. Um, and so it's something I'm doing all the time. Uh, so having a dedicated key for it, I found is actually incredibly useful, and I'm I'm feeling the benefit of that. I think one of the other things that's that's really good in some of the the modern mechanical keyboards as well is they often have um, in, they're entirely remappable, so that you can you can put macros onto keys, and you can like for example, I have the the shift key on mine set so that if I just tap it, it gives me a right um, bracket or parentheses um, in US terminology, which in itself is quite useful for functions and all the rest of it. But if you're using Vim and you want to skip along in normal mode through sentences, it's it's that key that you do, which would normally be a hold in the shift and press the, the bracket key. So again, it's about sort of trying to analyze what you're pressing day to day and thinking around that. Mechanical keyboards, in my experience, tend to be uh, a bit noisier. It can be. Um, is that a consideration if you're if you're working in a shared workspace? And are all mechanical keyboards loud by definition? No, they're, they're certainly not. And I think um, I, I think like all of us, when you when you first think of mechanical keyboards, if you have any kind of idea of what they are, you think of these like giant clicky clacky. You know, and you've got the keyboard warrior that you're speaking to on a screen share and you can barely hear the voice because all you can hear is this sort of machine gun of keys. Um, however, there's the sort of the, the main sort of switch types are um, the clicky ones, which are um, the ones that we're talking about there. There's then tactile switches, which give you the same sort of travel, um, but you don't get the physical um, and audible click as you push a key down. But then there's also... Um, Linear keys, which are just straight up and down, but you can also get silent variants of nearly all of them. If you are um, somebody who needs to sit in an office next to somebody, um, they're probably the sort of one that you should go for. And they're, they're no less, um, they're physically just as nice to use, I would say. I, th I know that some people say that they actually, um, the rhythm of the sound helps them to feel productive, um, which I, I do understand that, but obviously, if you're working amongst other people, your productive might be somebody else's 
disruptive. What What are the things that somebody should look for in terms of a mechanical keyboard? I mean, it, it all starts with the, the keys, the bits you actually touch, and they can vary quite quite a lot, can't they? Well, absolutely. Um, so there's the there's the aesthetic side of it, which typically, you know, we're developers and designers, we have opinions about what we like. Um, and every conceivable colour um, and the way even that the, the legends are printed on the keys, you get some hot shots that just do away with the legends altogether and they, you know, just like some blind magician um, know which buttons to press. I, I'm not one of those. Um, you also get people that can put the legends on the sort of front side of the keys. Um, and there's also little things that, um, for the longest time, like looking at this keyboard, I've got on the the J key and the F key a little sort of hump, which I assumed that was something to do with the manufacturing process. But it turns out they're homing keys so that you can rest your fingers on them and feel where you are on the keyboard. And then there's also um, there's different sorts of plastic. There's different angles to the keys themselves. I suppose if I was speaking to somebody who'd never had a mechanical keyboard before, although it sounds um, like a cop-out, I would probably just say, pick one you like the look of to begin with, <laughs> because the chances are you don't really know what you like until you try it and try a few. And, and sadly, that's where they're the cost of this obsession comes into play because you might find yourself going through three or four keyboards until you find one that you feel really sort of suits, you know, not just the key switch type, but the keycap material, the layout size, um, how customizable it is or isn't. And a bit like um, code editors, you have to be conscious of the fact that I could quite easily spend two days just messing around setting my code editor up, whereas really... I should give myself a big slap around the face and after a very limited amount of time, just get on with using it. So it's like all of these things. You do have to be um, conscious of the fact that you, you can indulge yourself too much into these things. So I would say get one, use it. The primary concern, as you alluded to before, should probably be whether you want a silent one or a clicky one to begin with because that's the sort of thing you can't easily undo. A lot of them these days also have um, what's called hot swap sockets so that if you get yourself a keyboard and decide you actually hate the feel of these switches, you can pull them all out and put a different set of switches in, which is not necessarily cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than getting a whole new keyboard. But the resale value in these things is typically very good anyway. So if you you know, you spend a couple hundred dollars on a keyboard, you probably get 150 back even like six, eight months down the line if you needed to. As you mentioned, the um there are all sorts of different types of switches that can exist under these keys. So we have the, it's, they're called keycaps, aren't they, on on the top, yep. the, which is the bit you actually touch. But then underneath those, you've got different switches. Yes. I found personally that I had no way of, of being able to comprehend what sort of switches I might want without being able to try them out. Okay. And of course, at the moment in particular, it's very difficult to yeah. to try out anything. You can't you can't go into a store. I mean, even if you could find one. Yes. Is yeah, there yeah. any any sort of default sort of switch you'd recommend for somebody if they didn't know where to start? Yeah, I think I would say that um if if you if the idea of a clicky one appeals, what you should be looking for is um it is a slightly confusing thing. There's basically colours which... So Cherry MX, who are the, ori- the sort of original makers of the majority of keyboard switches that you get in mechanical keyboards, they designated um, MX Blue 
as the clicky switches. And what you get now is, even though other companies are now making what's called MX compatible switches, which is a different company using the same style, creating the same style of switches, they follow on that um, coloring convention. So typically, blues, blue switches, whether it's kale or, or cherry or somebody else, are your clicky sort. A brown will be um, tactile, what, what's called a tactile switch, which is you get that same sort of um, resistance at the top of the key press, but you, without the, the click sound. If you like the idea of a key which, which doesn't have any sort of resistance and it just travels up and down in a linear fashion, a linear switch, you'd be looking for something which is called an MX red or equivalent. Um, and then something which is more silent. They're typically designated as quiet switches or silent switches. There's a whole sort of different camp of keyboard switches by a company called Topra, um, which is based in Japan. But that's probably something I would say not to worry about for now because they tend to be both more expensive, harder to come by. Um, and I would probably try and rule out by saying go for one of the easier to come by MX variants first. I uh, I chose MX Browns for my first keyboard. Yes, I think I did the same as well. I've I've no idea whether I like them or not because <laughs> the whole thing is so new. Yeah. One thing we need to keep in mind, I guess, is different layouts of keyboards. Uh, I mean, I I work with Macs, um, and obviously lots of people have got PCs and yes. various other things. Is that something to bear in mind when choosing a keyboard? It's almost a non-problem these days it used to be that some of the manufacturers um filco for example which are a good manufacturer of mechanical keyboards but they used to have um, problems with mac compatibility which you could work around with software for the mac there was a, a tool that used to be called key remap or something like that it's now called carabiner which is a, it's a freeware piece of software um, which gets around the problem but it was just an extra little bit of faff that you had to do um, but typically nowadays um, with either dip switches on the back, which are like little tiny physical switches, um, or the keyboard will have their own sort of um, way of pressing certain key combos to program like where the, the super key is. So, you know, if you're on Linux, it's super key, or, you know, we have the Mac key or the Windows key. Um, and you can typically swap all those sorts of things around with no problem at all. So it's, it's really more a case of, um, I mean, the example I gave in the article was there was a, a freeware piece of software um, which lets you you stick it on to record and it logs your key presses, which obviously you need to be sure that you're comfortable with that to begin with. But you can leave that thing running and it will produce a heat map of which keys you press and how often you've pressed them and all the rest of it. And often you'll find that your expectation doesn't match up with the, the actual data. And that can therefore influence whether you want a keyboard that's got a big number pad, you know, if you're somebody that works with Excel all the time, you're more than likely going to make use of that. But if not, you might find that actually you just don't need that whole section of the keyboard and you can go for something more compact. Um, and there's also uh, the other sort of thing coming back to sort of comfort is um, ergonomic keyboards, which most of us at, at some point have seen somebody with one of the sort of Microsoft natural keyboards where you've got the slightly sort of turned sets of keys for left and right hand. Um, in the mechanical world, there's a few different um, ergonomic keyboards, the big one being the ErgoDox, um, which is a, there's the ErgoDox EZ, which, again, we, we mentioned in the article. But that's not only two separate keyboard panels, but it also lets you adjust the sort of rake 
of the key panel as well. So you can very easily change exactly the sort of shape of those keypads and where they are. So again, although they're not cheap, if you're somebody that suffers with um, RSI and the like doing a lot of keyboard work, it's perhaps worth looking at one of those. Now, when I was looking at uh, mechanical keyboards, I discovered that there were lots and lots of options I could build that came pre-assembled, ready to go, just plug in and, and, and off we go. But there were also lots that seemed to come essentially as kits or as just a board and you could buy just switches and you could buy just keycaps and you sort of assemble it all yourself. That sounds pretty daunting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it is. And I would certainly say if, you're, if it's your first mechanical keyboard, don't, don't go there. You know, it's, it's, it's too much to take on at, at once. Um, but it's a little bit as you get, you know, if you do find yourself enjoying um, keyboards, as it were, it's a bit like a Lego or a Meccano set. Um, so I recently did the first um, keyboard build of my own having had them for sort of four or five years. And that involves soldering the switches onto the board and all, and all sorts, which is not a level of geekery that I would um, suggest for the casual use. You know, like just get a keyboard and make use of it and see how you like it first. But because they are getting more and more popular, gaming in particular is where um, they're really starting to find a market now because you've got gamers who are obsessed with, you know, the, the shortest possible input lag of them pressing the space or whatever they're pressing to um, nuke somebody or whatever it is the kids these days do. I'm, I'm out of that loop now. Um, but that's where they're gaining um, notoriety and popularity. And you, you're getting the big peripheral brands like Logitech getting involved and, and Corsair that now make mechanical keyboards. So you're getting more and more of this stuff is more easily accessible and easy to get hold of. Moving on from keyboards slightly, or I mean, perhaps maybe not. Um, earlier in the year, you had a, an accident, didn't you, and lost most of a finger? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll give you the sort of the short York Notes version of it because it's uh, it's quite a story. I was essentially, it was um, early February, and it was one of the first days in the UK we had snow that year, and as is typical in the UK, if a snowflake falls, the entire infrastructure grinds to a halt. And so... We were stuck in traffic having um, come back from the gym at, at lunch. There was five of us in the car and we said, well, we've got a meeting at three o'clock and it was like five to three. We weren't far from the office. Let's just take a shortcut through this this bit of land, which we've done many times before, and we'll get back to the office. Um, and as we went through, um, the other lads went one way. There was three of them went one way and I carried on the way that I already knew and got to a bit and... A new fence had been installed, but it was, you know, it wasn't like a, a sketchy looking fence. It was a sort of everyday, it, brand new, you know, no sharp edgy bits, nothing like that. Um, lots of sort of footholds. It was maybe six foot tall, but this sort of fence, as a, an average person, you've probably been over a hundred times before and would have thought nothing of it. So I climbed up one side, um, hung on the other, and then I was maybe sort of three or four inches from the floor and dropped off felt a bit of a weird twang in my hand. I thought, oh, I wonder if I caught my wedding ring there on the, the fence. I wonder if I put a mark on it and glanced down and there was very little on my finger left. So it turned out that it had, on the, the side of the fence I couldn't see, there was a, where the sort of, uh, the crosses sort of terminate. I had caught my wedding ring on it and it had essentially, um, yeah, removed <laughs> the biggest part of my finger and so um very very bizarre set of circumstances as i was then 
trying to not bleed everywhere. Um, at the same time, find the other part of my finger and hope they could stick it back on. In my naivety, I thought, well, as long as I can find the finger, like this is easy these days, you know, they'll just, a few stitches, I'll be back in the game. Um, but it turns out when you do, it's it's called a ring avulsion. And, and I know it's actually quite common. Um, they told me up at the, the hospital that I went to that it's they get at least one a weekend, which I was like, crikey, I really would have liked to have received that memo. <laughs> I perhaps would have thought twice about wearing a, we- a wedding ring. Um, but because it's sort of, I've been too grim about it, because it's um, torn away from your hand, um, the ligaments get pulled from down in the palm of your hand as well. So it's almost impossible for them to put it back. So, um, yeah, so long story short, it's it's by no means um, fixed now, but it's it, it's on the way. It's probably going to be 12 months until it's it feels, um, you know, I wouldn't say painful. It's uncomfortable more than anything. Um, and obviously getting used to the fact every day you wake up in the morning and like, look and, oh my God. <laughs> you know, mentally it's quite hard adjustment to make um but but very quickly i was able to to use the keyboard but it was it's funny because you your mind still thinks you've you're at the end of your finger is where it used to be and so you're you're missing a lot of keys as you type and you have to make that adjustment that oh actually that finger's not there anymore so these sort of particular key combos that i'm i'm used to doing and have been ingrained in my mind for for years and years and years you have to sort of unpick and, and redo um, but I guess that the human mind has an incredible capacity to um, work around these problems. And I don't feel now even just, so that was, yeah, that was like 10th of February. Here we are beginning of May. I don't feel now like it's a hindrance, particularly on the keyboard. Things like lifting weights or rowing or something like that, you can certainly still tell a difference. And I think it will take a while for my hand to, to get stronger again. Were there any adaptations that you needed to make other than the, the sort of mental adaptations when it comes to typing? Is, is there anything else about your workspace or anything that you've, that you've noticed um, you'd needed to change? I don't think there has been really. I mean, in, a, in an odd kind of way, I've been very lucky because uh, that particular finger is probably the weakest finger that you have anyway. And it's on, for me, my non-dominant hand. Um I didn't realize at the time, but apparently your your little finger is 40% of your lifting ability. It comes from your little finger. So they said if you'd have, if you'd have lost your little finger, it would have been you know far greater implications. And obviously your thumb is a really big deal. Um, so in a weird way, they said like you know if you were going to lose a finger, that's the one to go for. <laughs> Great. Um, but the funny thing is the in terms of actually like your, your typing speed or whatever. Um, your brain kind of almost didn't have to consciously do anything at all. It just sort of remapped over maybe three or four weeks. Um, I was obviously I was away for we- um, work for two weeks, but I still had a, a book to finish, and so I was using that as my my practice of you know trying to get back up to speed as, as soon as I could. Um, but yeah, very bizarre set of circumstances. You always kind of arrogantly assume these kind of things happen to other people, and then one day it happens to you. Exactly. Yeah, I think uh, so many people who note um, the fact that they are suddenly needing to benefit from what we consider to be accessibility sort of features of, yeah. of the work that we do. Um, it's not because they've, you know, they've had a, an incredibly traumatic sort of life-changing incident or there's not that they were born in a particular way 
but just something small and you know a minor break of an arm or uh you know losing a finger or yeah any of these things um failing eyesight can just bring home the the need that actually accessibility is something that we all rely on uh, you know even just as we age yeah absolutely i mean it's funny because i've, I've I, I sort of i've always been mindful of accessibility for sure and but I, d- I don't think i was perhaps as acutely aware as you say um of just the fact that you can become that that same situation yourself you know like you say it's sort of my own arrogance that i just sort of you you think you can go on forever feeling just fine um but yeah it's i suppose it's not a bad thing to get a, a slap in the face from time to time and makes you reappraise things definitely yeah so I've been learning all about optimizing my workspace. Um, what have you been learning about lately? Well, I've been—I got a book that I wrote the first edition of in 2012, uh, the one that you mentioned at the start of the show. And the publishers hassled me every sort of three or four years to do a, another version of it, which I always grumble and roll my eyes about. And I think well, this is dawn light. There's nothing new to add here. But it turns out things move on quite a lot, and. Um, I think the majority of my time at the minute has been, I've learned a hell of a lot about CSS Grid, which I know um, Rachel of this parish is a, a big proponent on, has been heavily involved in. And I think um, the sort of thing that I've said to to people is that it's probably getting a good handle on CSS Grid is probably the biggest upgrade to your CSS skills you can do um, if you don't already know Grid. That's been um, fantastic. And then, for the last sort of, I started out like a lot of people of my age. I didn't go into web development as a as an intention. I kind of find myself there, and so for the longest time, I stayed away from what we'd call real programming languages. And it's only in the last sort of two or three years that I've got into um, JavaScript and TypeScript, and so um, classes and things like that in JavaScript, which I've just tried to sort of steer away from the longest time. That's the kind of stuff I've been looking at and trying to really wrap my head around destructuring and all this kind of stuff. Um, there's no end in sight for learning in web dev world, that's for sure. That is definitely for sure. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Ben, you can follow him on Twitter, where he's at Ben Frain, and find his personal website at benfrain.com. Thanks for joining us today, Ben. Do you have any parting words? No, just... Uh, if you wear a wedding ring, maybe think about perhaps not. <laughs> this is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. <laughs>